when I think about what made me a good athlete, what made me a good student, a lot of the same things apply to why I'm good at sales enablement or why I was effective as a seller. This week on Merchants of Change, we've got Jen Haskell. Jen played college basketball, volleyball, and softball before starting her sales career with Kronos. She transitioned into sales enablement and has had a long and successful career in training salespeople. She is currently the Director of Sales Enablement and Training at Nasuni. Here she is, Jen Haskell. I'm JR Butler, co-founder and CEO of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes and military veterans into becoming a professional salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? Today on the show, we've got Jen Haskell. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Super pumped to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really excited for this conversation. I think you're our first um, sales enablement uh, professional to join Yay. the show, and, and it's going to be an awesome, awesome conversation. So, Jen, little background: um, our podcast we built really for our audience that we work with. We help former elite athletes and military veterans successfully transition into sales careers. So, we try to have our guests are all former athletes or people who have served in the military that have found success in certain parts of the sales industry. And that's why I'm really excited to dig into to your background. Um, and the, the way we like to flow the show is kind of start with that sports background, talk about your transition out of athletics, and then get into like nuggets for our audience. Because our audience is people that are like kind of on the bubble about thinking about this transition, people that have recently made it. And then we have a pretty good audience of sales leaders too. So we like to give them some nuggets as well. Sound like a good plan? I, I mean, I love what you guys do. I think it's amazing. I think it's needed. And I'm just so happy to be here and be a little bit a part of it. Um, I'm really excited too. Now you were, if, I, if I'm reading this correctly, you're a three-sport athlete in college? Yeah, I, uh, I was on my way to, I had, a, I had a scholarship for D2 for softball. I had a scholarship for D1 for basketball. I was on my way to the D1, and I was playing uh, summer softball, Babe Ruth, and the basketball coach at the college said, no, no, you're not a softball player anymore. So two weeks before I was supposed to report, I called the one D3 school that had recruited me that I didn't even talk to, and I said, can I play all three sports for you? And they said, yes. And I said, good, because I don't want anyone to tell me that I'm no longer a softball player or a volleyball player. And I ended up going D3. Oh, my God. What a badass. <laughs> That's unreal. Oh. What um, I always ask this like really broad question. And for you, I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer because you have experience across like elite experience across all three. But like favorite memory of your sports career, like what comes to mind? What what what? What's the first thing that pops in your head? I mean, it's easy. I was the first girl at my college that scored a thousand points in basketball. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. And like, 
any any like just generally like your sports experience like things that you love you miss the most about being an athlete growing up uh i miss playing with my brothers so i could not be more cliche irish catholic i have five brothers and three sisters and oh we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have a ton of money but we had enough money to buy gloves and baseballs and softballs and bats and basketballs and uh, my favorite teammate of all time was my younger brother, Tommy. We played semi-pro co-ed uh, co uh, softball, slow-pitch softball, and it was a blast. One year, we actually got co-MVP. That might be the whole highlight of my athletic career. Yeah, that is amazing. And I, I heard you, <laughs> you and Austin talking before I joined. It sounds like you're, you're getting into the, the coaching now, you sports coaching. I'm in the thick of it. So I have a 10-year-old daughter and I have a nine-year-old son and they're four sport athletes. And I have coached everything that I could possibly coach in the past three years post-pandemic. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. God bless you. I, I'm the son, <laughs> I'm the son of a high school hockey coach. So I grew up around the word the only bad part of coaching is the parents. <laughs> you know, that, uh, I, that is a true statement this day and age. I wish it wasn't. And I don't want to take away from the parents out there that, that trust me to do what I'm good at and know that I'm going to help their kid. I always say like, I'm not coaching your kid to just be successful and win at this sport. Life gets really tough later on and I want them to be successful at life. And the parents that let me do that, they get it. But there are some parents that have never played sports and man, they're tough to get over that hump. <laughs> oh yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I have a, um, I have a feeling this might be a, like asking you who your favorite kid is, but, it, but with three sports, you must've had like a favorite. No. Uh, you know what? I've, I've been asked this so much in my life basketball is the one that I'm most intense at that I want to win the most softball is the one that balances me volleyball is the one that I don't have to work as hard at to be good at and it relaxes me I would say though softball is what I learned from my dad he was my first coach he was a navy guy he played when he was in the navy so softball has always been just a little more my favorite than the other ones with a thousand points, is it a fair assumption to make that basketball was also your, your best sport? Like, was that the one you were the best one at? No, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to brag. I feel kind of weird about this, but I was nationally ranked in softball. I'm wow. a, I'm a power hitter. I'm, I'm five, four, I'm tiny. I had these old brothers that were all like six foot and told me I couldn't play, or I was like designated ball getter. Um, and I just wanted to become better than them. So my dad taught me how to hit lefty and righty. And I became a, a, my nickname was like Big Poppy. Teams would put the Big Poppy shift on. And if you don't know Boston sports, you have no idea that reference. Shame on you. <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah. I, I, I think we have a large following in Boston. Oh my God. So three sport athlete and a switch hitter. Like we've had... We've had Navy SEALs on here. We've had NFL alumni. I, I'm officially making you the most badass guest we've had so far. Yes. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> oh, so cool. Well, let's talk now. Let's get into the transition a little bit. Um, was 
how clear was your path like going into your junior senior year for you? Like where were you where were you at mentally from a career perspective as you were wrapping up college? Uh no clue. No clue. Oh. I I actually was a sport management major and if I didn't have this big family and we had a lot more money, my goal was to get a law degree and I wanted to be the next Jerry Maguire. Like I wanted to be an agent, but that's just not how it happened. Uh, I ended up starting at a company because I was the nanny for this family and their aunt worked at that company. And that was sort of how I ended up in the corporate world. Once I was there though, I realized I love to teach. I love to coach and I love the art of selling. And then it just naturally evolved into perfect fit. This is what I want to do. I want to lead sellers into being the best versions of themselves and making as much money as they can. That is so cool. So did you do sales? Like, were you a salesperson for a little while? Yeah. You know, it's funny. You look at my resume, you looked at my LinkedIn, you'll never see the title seller. I've had to sell myself my whole oh, life, right? right? I've had to, and I have sold. I mean, when I worked in corporate education, I had to upsell training. Uh, I worked at a part-time job for a while at a ski store, and I used to sell so much ski apparel. And the funny thing is, is I've only skied once in my life because I was too good at basketball and coaches used to say, you can't ski. <laughs> but uh, I learned everything about skiing and therefore, I, I was like this expert and I would have people walk out with like $2,000 in apparel. So <laughs> it's it's um, and, and listen, even even working in enablement and working in training, that is a sales job. Like you need to get people to buy into the curriculum and buy into the work that they need to do to like take the most advantage of it. Don't you think? Oh, a thousand percent. First of all, you've got people that are going to look at you and think that you're a trainer. And what is the first thought most people have when it comes to training? Someone's telling them to be somewhere they don't want to be, to learn something they don't want to learn. And it's usually a person that is so textbook, they've never actually walked a day in the same shoes as that seller. So one, I had to sell myself as far as don't let the resume fool you. I know how to sell and I'll prove to you right now at the end of this conversation, you're going to want to hire me because you'll be like, yep, she just demonstrated how to sell. Um, and then two, it's like getting your stakeholders on board, your leadership team, your managers, and then getting your sellers on board. They have to trust you and they have to know that you understand what a day in the life of, of a seller is like. Totally. Totally. I, um, when when you made that like that decision over to to getting into that training space was there was there parts that you were like hesitant about that you that you eventually got over or was it like this is this is what i was meant to do because of that teaching and coaching background i remember when i first started was i hesitant yes <laughs> i was literally 22 years old and everyone else on the team was towards the later half of their career. And we were doing this certification where you had to present back to your peers. Now, everyone in the room had delivered this curriculum at least 15 times in the past month. And it was the first time I was delivering it. And I remember going home and freaking out. And I was like, nope, I need a new job. I need to give my notice. I can't do this. Um, 
But then I did it. I kind of, just like you would a game, right? I pushed through it. I forced myself to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And then I came out of that and I was like, they don't know more than me. I'm a younger generation. I have a different approach and I need to use this to my advantage, which is exactly what came from having a sports mindset. Totally. hundred percent. That adaptability. We talk about mm -hmm. that adaptability so much. Like it's the environment's going to change. You're going to wake up on game day and it's raining out. You were going to go, you were going to go with your air game. Now you got to go to the ground, right? Like it's going to exactly. happen all the time. And, and you've been doing this long enough that there's been a lot of changes in the way people consume content and learn. Um, when did you like, let's talk about early on, like kind of as you know, the, the iPhone, the smartphone came out in 2007. Right. And I think that now it's been around for like 16 years. Mm -hmm. and that's really, really affected the way people consume content. Has that changed? Like outside of that, what have been like some of the major changes that you've seen in the way that you roll out your programs? Uh, well, I think, uh, you know, I look a lot at the different generations because millennials sometimes get a tough rap, right? Yeah. Because it's like, oh, they expect promotions soon and they have this expectation. You know, they're not working nine to five. They work from home. First of all, I love millennials. They keep me young and fresh and they're like sponges. They, yeah. they are willing to learn everything. Like they've figured out the ultimate work-life balance. And I can't train a millennial the same way that I might train somebody who's been in sales for 30, 40 years because they've had technology since day one. Right. But what I can do is I can say to them, I'm going to teach you this, but in return, you're my expert when it comes to prospecting. You're my expert when it comes to sales technologies like LinkedIn Sales Navigator or you know, listening to podcasts and using your iPhone. So I'm going to have you help me train this older group that maybe hasn't had technology since day one. That's really smart because like the millennial is like operates technology like a fifth limb, whereas yep. like that older person, it's it's not as natural for them. So getting them bought in by by saying, hey, I need your help to get these these folks spun up. That's really good. And then now what you've done is you've just bridged the generational gap and you've made them see what they can both bring to the table. Now you've created one heck of an environment for them to strategize and to work off of each other. Totally, totally. Um, now, I'm a, I'm a millennial in theory. I think I'm an 80, 84. So I think I'm like the old, I'm the old millennial. I have the... <laughs> The unique experience of getting out of hockey practice at at 15 years old and using a payphone to call my mom on 1-800-COLLECT and be like, hey, mom, practice is over. Come pick me up before yep. she had to pay for it. But then, <laughs> but then I also had, you know, Facebook came out like my senior year of college and the iPhone came out a couple of years after that. So like I'm kind of that weird middle stage. But now you've got like Gen Z, right? And Gen Z is they were seven when the iPhone came out and they, they grew up on Instagram and TikTok. Yep. How is that, that new, like short, short consumption of, of content? Are you starting to see that impact the way you're teaching? Well, yeah. I mean, you can't roll out a 70 page playbook and say, read this and learn from this. Right. I, I actually think that group does a heck of a lot better with, 
coachable moments. Like they love if you say, I got 10 minutes on my calendar that's available. So I never schedule 45, 30 minute meetings with that group. I schedule 10, 15 minute meetings because that's what they respond to. And I say, in the next 10 minutes, what do you need to cover? What's most important to you? And let's bang that out and get you ready for either the call that's coming up or, you know, maybe you have to finish a proposal or a pre-call plan or something like that. So the, the way that they absorb information is like quick hits. And you got to understand that data sheets, you know, Slack messages. Do you guys do any with, with like, since COVID, um, like, is there a piece of your curriculum that's delivered digitally or is it all mostly live stuff? I am always going to follow a blended learning approach. Uh, There is going to be, you know, self-paced learning, there's going to be hands-on practice. I am big on the hands-on practice. I think that it's more sticky when it's actually helping you drive your conversations or helping you drive an actual opportunity that you have. Uh, So I'm always going to do a combination of those things. Usually the self-paced stuff is like, if I need to set the tone so that when we are all in person in the same room and I've got the, you know, millennials and the older reps and, you know, everyone's starting on a, a clean slate, same level. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the key point there that I'll call out is like, it's blended. It's, you cannot just rely on self-paced training. You can't no. just rely on like classroom training. You can't just rely also on like real life practice. It has to be that combination, right? Like that's, yeah. that's what really works. Yeah, exactly. And like going back to your question before about sort of the younger generations, they respond really well to certain technologies like a call recording software. This is something I'm passionate about because I've implemented a call recording software at every company I've been at. And I think if you do it the right way, people aren't thinking, oh, this is Big Brother is watching. They actually realize the benefit to them. And that younger Uh, type of seller, they really love the concept of being able to go back in and listen to that game tape and get the coaching from their peers and then also uh, their direct manager or enablement. I love that. Um, What we found, we do like a big chunk of our training is, is digital because we're serving, you know, anywhere from 400 to 600 athletes and veterans a month, right? If we Mm-hmm. If we did everything person to person, like our business would be dead because yeah. we just couldn't afford it. It'd be and too much time and money. Totally. So, so what we found was we did a revamp recently of our training where we had a lot of, it's a lot of video flip cards, multiple choice, things like this. But what we had to do was on the video side, we, we cut anything that was over like four minutes long because yeah. We were just, we can see that they're just like, they're not watching it. And if they're, yeah. they're watching it, they're pressing play and leaving the room. Anything over four minutes, especially that younger generation, it's it not necessarily going to stick with them, you know? Well, the, the four minutes, you're spot on. Think about, you know, you already said like the TikTok trend, the YouTube shorts, the reels on Facebook. What are those? Those are like 20, 30 seconds of content. So even that four minute window is going to get chunked down significantly as far as attention span is concerned. What I want to see more companies do though, 
I would love to see more companies build other components into their learning plans, like, uh, you know, shorts, as well as podcasts, um, as well as snippets of podcasts. Hopefully this recording, there's going to be a few key things that we say in like, we should start getting in the habit of pulling out the 25 seconds of the most poignant statement in that conversation. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. Our, our, that's why, why I started the podcast originally is so I could litter these short clips into the training. Like, and we use it obviously as a marketing tool too, but that's the big reason is so they can hear from people like you, how, the, how to think about this whole, this whole profession. Um, you made a comment at the beginning that, that I really liked that one of the reasons you went down this route, the teaching, the coaching, but also your appreciation of the craft of sales, right? The art and the science. Could you, could you just add a little more color there? Cause I think it would be a, a cool kind of take from you. Yeah. I, when I think about what made me a good athlete, what made me a good student, a lot of the same things apply to why I'm good at sales enablement or why I was effective as a seller. It's so much the, the planning and the practicing beforehand to, to prep yourself and to get ready and to become faster and to become more audible ready to understand when you should pivot. Uh, and I think for me, that was, that was like the realization I had. My whole life, I knew how to manage my time because I had all these things I was trying to juggle. So I knew how to prioritize. I knew how to focus when I needed to focus. I knew how to prep and I knew how to execute. And then once I was done, I knew how to go back and say, did I do everything I wanted to do or could I have done it better? And what will I do differently next time? It doesn't matter if it's life, if it's sales, if it's sports, all of those things are what you need to be a successful adult. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so true. And, and uh, the parallels between sports and sales are just, they're endless. Like it could go on forever. I really it feel could. like that. it could. Right. And like when you're, when you're an athlete that has played competitively your whole life, you still get that level of competition in the sales world, right? Totally. You're still trying to win. So there's nothing that energizes you more. Even me, I'm not closing, but you know what? When I have a new hire that joins, and I just did, we had a new hire that came in in September and the average, I think the average deal cycle now is like, it takes 381 days or so for a new wow. hire to close a sale. Well, I just had a guy, granted he's amazing. On, on the chart, he's everything you want in a seller, but, he just closed his first two deals within his first like four months with the company. Wow. So it goes to show you like if you have the right recipe and you feed the right food to the seller, it can happen. They can become productive pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely. That's, a, that's an awesome stat right there. Um, a big part of our audience, like I said, they're, they're, these are people that have never sold anything Um and we're, we're, we're trying, as you can imagine, we try to put them in companies where training and development is a big part of the culture, right? So in a lot of cases, they're walking in and there is a sales enablement function. Sometimes there isn't, but for the most part, there is. How, how would you advise a new, a new salesperson and somebody that comes from an athletic and military background, how would you advise them to think about sales enablement as, as like in terms of how to leverage it and how to, how to like approach that relationship as a new seller with the sales enablement organization? 
I'm going to flip the script a little bit, if you don't mind. I love it. Because I'm actually going to tell them before they even join the company what they should ask during their interview process. I love so that. that. Is that cool? That's cool. That's <laughs> cool. All right, good. Um, listen, you want to be successful and it's not all about the company trying to figure out if you're the right person for them. You've got to figure out if that's the right company that's going to help you be successful. And one of the questions that you can ask is, tell me what your sales enablement function is and what you're going to get for an answer. Some companies may say, oh, they work with marketing, they create content, they do some training here and there. All right, that's that's pretty minimal sales enablement, in my opinion. But if you've got that company that says, listen, we have dedicated sales coaches. They're going to give you the information you need. They're going to help you with your pre-call planners. They're going to come up with prescriptive 30, 60, 90 day plans. They're going to measure. If you do this, you should be able to accomplish this as a result. They're going to hold your hand for at least the first nine months. And then they don't go away. They just shift their focus so that you have that continuous reinforcement you need. So that's the question you should ask is, what's your sales enablement function look like? And how are they going to help me successfully transition into this role and succeed as quickly as possible? 100%. That's great advice. Great advice. Now, going back to my original question, when they get into that, they get a good answer that they like. What's like the operating rhythm? What's the, what's the engagement that these, these guys and girls should be thinking about when they're, they're sitting in the seat and now they've got access to this great sales enablement function? How do they build that into that operating rhythm? Because you know, it's, it's like, here's a new tech stack. Here's a new product. Here's a new ICP. Here's all these new people that you need to get to know. Like, where does this all fit in and how do, how do they approach that? They need to be front and center. Reach out to your sales enablers all the time. Totally. Even if it's a quick Slack, even if it's to say, hey, you got a second at some point this week. I try to actually meet with my new hires once to twice a week as they're onboarding. I think that's extremely important. But make sure they know who you are. Ask questions, put yourself out there, form the relationships, ask for help. If you've got a call coming up and you're like, hey, I ran this by my manager, but I love sales enablement's point of view, send them your pre-call planner, right? Send them the email that you're going to blast out to prospects and hope that somebody looks at and says, hey, I want to have a conversation with them. Ask them to sit with you to practice your elevator pitch. We're going to, good enablement is going to schedule those things to happen, but you need to schedule it more for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that ownership piece is really important because you, you need to have that your whole career, right? Like if yeah. you, you need to start building that muscle of like, you know, not, not like entitled isn't the right word, but like, don't expect don't expect it, like go and get it, right? Like, like own it, you know what I mean? Yeah, you have to choose your own destiny, right? It's, it, success doesn't just happen. There isn't no. a person out there, athlete, you know, professional corporate, like Richard Branson, there's no one out there that has achieved the ultimate level of success without putting in the work and grinding day after day. And I guarantee you, if you are that new seller and people see that you're reaching out to them to get what you need to succeed, 
they're going to call you out for that in a positive way. They're going to say that kid's a go-getter and, and whatever you need, now I'm here to help you. So true. So true. It's part of build. It's, it, it's a huge part of building your brand internally, right? Like that, Absolutely. That, 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 that pull of like help people think that, that that's a bad thing. That's a good thing. The more you're doing that, the more people are like, this person gets it. They want to be successful. They're willing to do whatever it takes to be successful. Exactly. The, Two things that I hear regularly is they're not succeeding because they don't have a fire in the belly, or I see they've got a fire in the belly and I want to help them even more than I did to start. So you can choose which one of those individuals you want to be. I prefer to be the one that's got the fire in my belly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, I don't want to, so I don't want to give away too many of your like, you know, secret sauce, but generally... <laughs> If, if Jen Haskell was going to build like a sales enablement playbook, what are, what are like some of the key things that look that are part of that playbook? And, and I know, you know, it's probably one for sellers and one for leaders, right? Like, do you want to yeah. talk about that a little bit? It's definitely one for sellers and one for leaders. Um, for the, the sellers, it's, you know, I, I have the playbook. <laughs> it's constantly changing, right? right. I, have to, I have to change it based on what's happening in the world, the industry, our own business. But it's one part time management. Like what's your cadence? You got to establish a cadence early on. Uh, a lot of sellers struggle and it's usually because they're struggling with time management. You have to know every single week, if you've got 50 hours that week, how much are you spending on enablement and development? How much are you spending in your pre-call game? How much are you spending in your debrief? So my playbook is helping them understand what's the expected operating rhythm. Build your cadence around what the people, the leaders around you expect, right? And then what does good look like? Here's how you build and manage your pipeline. Uh, here's your prospecting cadence. Here's your tools and your processes. These are the ways that you strategize because we don't win or lose alone. So right. you've got to know how do you strategize with all these different individuals in the organization? And that's really just like the first couple of pages. Right. <laughs> but then on the leadership side, I have this conversation all the time on the leadership side usually your sales leaders have been really effective sellers, right? They've been good sellers and probably the toughest transition for them is to no longer be the superstar that comes in and saves the day with the deal, right? So you have to teach them how, and, and I went through a training with um, a guy out in New York, Keith Rosen, and he always talks about, don't be the chief problem solver. Figure out how to empower your team to get to the answer themselves. It's the only way it's going to stick in their brain. So for the managers, it's very much, it's other things. Understanding what motivates their team. Understanding what their cadence should be as a manager. Their one-on-ones versus their team meetings. Um, situational awareness and self-awareness emotional intelligence, right? What motivates one rep isn't going to motivate the next rep. That is, that is like, to be honest, that's like almost like all the other stuff aside. If you can figure that out and lead someone accordingly, the other stuff you can kind of figure out later. That's the most important totally. part of leadership. 
Totally. And it's that much more important nowadays that most of us tend to be virtual more than we are in an office in the same room with people reading energy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's harder. It's definitely harder. But but I think like really good leaders, you know, it's it's hard because it's a work environment. But you do like at the end of the day, you need to get to know your people. Like you need to know who they are as people, where they want to be, um, what they want to accomplish, because you can I don't want to say use it against them. You can actually use it to help them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Sure. Like I, I've had reps that worked for me that wanted to be CROs, right? So when I went into those, those like QBRs and those deal, those deal reviews, that's, I kept that in mind and I'm like, Hey, like, where are we in this, you know, decision process? And when you, when they can't answer, it's like, Hey man, like, you want to be a CRO someday, you've got to be able to have this conversation with your reps. So you need to be able to do it really well versus I have the, the best rep that ever worked for me, never wanted to be a leader. All she, she was a hundred percent coin operated. So every deal before we started talking about it, I would put the commission, the commission rate on a slide and I'd be yep. like, this is an $85,000. And I'd have pictures of like Birkin bags, and like shoes, because nice. that was her. That was her whole thing, and that's, that's how what we would motivated talk. Motivated her. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. true. It's true. People are motivated by different things, and you know how many times have you had a manager in your career? Hopefully, a lot. But I'm going to make an assumption. Probably not. How many times has a manager ever said to you, "Hey, tell me what motivates you. What drives you. What gets you fired up?" We don't have those conversations enough. No, we don't. We definitely don't. And that's, that's like, that should be one of the first conversations we're having with new people. Absolutely. Um, speaking of new people, I, so we almost exclusively work with folks that are like right out of sports, right out of military service, right? It's, it's really like true entry-level sellers. Um, what are you seeing as the biggest gap for entry-level se sellers nowadays? Oh, I... I hate saying this because it's going to make me sound like an old person that's creating a problem. Um, business acumen. Yes. And let me tie it back to the conversation that we had earlier. When you have a generation that has been on their iPhones the whole time, that has been using things like Instant Messenger and Facebook, they lose. There is a loss in business acumen. There's a loss in professional speaking, in professional writing, because we speak the way that we send chat messages or text messages. So true. It's so true. Well, I would say be cognizant of that and figure out how to be like when I was in college, I had professional speaking. I had professional writing. I don't even know if those are courses anymore, but I know there's a lot of companies out there that do that. And there's a lot of free content online. Change your mindset and like really task yourself with being the ultimate professional speaker and writer. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I also don't want to sound like an old man yelling at clouds, but I also see like, um, and, and I do think this, I, I, I think a lot, like a lot of people that say, oh, this generation is lazy. This generation, that's not true. Like it's there, not true. there's plenty of people that are my dad's generation that are lazy, but, yeah, but, but the, but the one generational thing that, that I am starting to recognize a little bit more and more is like 
the and, and maybe it's different with athletes and veterans, but like the concept of like the hierarchy. And 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 I mean that like both internally in your organization, but also when you're a salesperson, you need to understand the organizational hierarchy of the people that you're going to sell to. Are, are you seeing that at all? Yes. When I, when I like the root of why I just said what I said with the professional writing and speaking is because the art of sales requires you to understand who you're talking to, what they care about most and what's going to resonate with them. You have to earn trust with somebody who is being sold to from every single angle, from a bunch of people that don't actually know who they are and haven't even earned the right to have that conversation. And so you've got to know that the one time you connect with that higher level persona and you say the wrong thing, they're not going to speak to you again. Totally. Totally. You're going to blow all credibility. Now, if you go into that and you think, okay, if I connect with this person, what do they care about? If I connect here, what do they care about? It's all, it's a game changer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there is that, that's like the context switching almost like you're not going to go in and talk to like, if you sell a, like you're in the infrastructure space, that's where I grew up, like selling into like an IT administrator, a storage administrator. Mm-hmm. Is, di- is a different conversation and different words. And you're talking about different features and benefits than when you, when you're at the end of the sales cycle and now you're trying to get a signature from the chief information officer. Exactly. And, and that context switching, I'm seeing a little bit of a challenge for, because it's, it's almost become a little bit more acceptable. Like, and I, and I, I'm, one of our core values in my company is authenticity. I do think you should always be yourself but you have to be a certain version of yourself with certain people. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to communicate that to the, to this younger Gen Z generation. It is. I mean, infrastructure, so much of infrastructure or the security world. These are people that are maybe 10, five years out from retirement. They're one, not going to want to take a risk. I mean, they just want to coast out, right? They don't want to put themselves out there. So you really have to be compelling and you have to understand the difference between one person's pain and another. For one person, the pain is, you know, the process isn't very efficient, um, the downtime, the business continuity is a concern. The right. ease of use is a concern. But for another group, it's like, if I don't do this right, my whole team loses their jobs. I blow my professional brand, right? I, yeah. I may be on the hook and go into jail because our whole network got hacked, right? Really bad things happened. And so you have to understand that. You, you got to speak to who you're talking to. You do. You do. And, and I'm sure that that impacts how you train these people. Like, I'm sure you're spending a lot of time on like personas and like getting them to, to, to understand what it is like in their shoes. Right. That's a big piece of what you do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do that for my tenured reps too. Um, but it's a little bit of a different conversation with my newer sellers because they haven't necessarily like they've never been buyers. No. How how easy is it to sell to a buyer when you've never actually experienced it? Totally. So I do this exercise with them, which has nothing to do with infrastructure or security. I have them sell a car to each other. And when we get out of that exercise, I'm like, okay, what's the number one thing 
that people hate doing, buying a car. Why do they hate doing it? And then we kind of dissect it. And what they realize is, why does buying a car stink? Well, because usually you've got someone that's focused on price. They're focused on features and functionality. But the best car salesperson is the one that's like, hey, tell me what your commute looks like during the week. Are you driving into the city? What about the weekends? Oh, you have three kids and they're all hockey players. So you need room, right? <laughs> you have a grandmother that lives with you. So you want to make sure there's airbags in that third row, right? Nobody sells that way in the car industry. And that's why we hate it. And that's why my last two cars have been Carvana cars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, Jen, this was so good. We, so we do, we do two final questions with everybody. The, the first one we, we want to know, and, and I'm excited to hear you, like, why do you love sales? I love sales. Oh, this is just so dorky, but it's true. I love sales because I'm still part of a team and I've always been part of a team. I love that answer. That's a clip right there, Jen. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But the final question is we, people always ask me, JR, why do you focus on athletes and veterans specifically? Um, and my, my short answer to somebody that hasn't been one of those things is I don't have to explain to these people what it means to be dialed in. And the reason that that's important is because every great seller I've ever worked with that's ever worked for me that I've ever competed against the way I would describe that person is oh, there. He or she is dialed in, Right. So I want to know from your perspective, what does it mean as a seller to be dialed in? It means, you know, you know what you want to accomplish in the short term, in the long term, and you probably have an idea of what you have to do to accomplish it, but you're smart enough to know that you're not the only point of view you should pay attention to. And you reach out to the other individuals to say, what else should I be thinking here? I think that athletes and individuals that have served in our military, they already have the structure, they have the rigor, they have the drive. They know that if there's an end goal in sight, it's going to take a whole lot of things leading up to that to get there. A hundred percent. That might be one of my favorite answers so far. Because <laughs> like, like you talked about, they know what they need to accomplish. The way I describe it is like, you have a bigger purpose. Right. Yeah. And yeah. because you have that bigger purpose, you are going to pursue goals related to that bigger purpose. You're going to get passionate about becoming excellent at what it takes to achieve those goals. And you're not going to be afraid of practicing with intention to get there. So that's yeah. kind of the way I, that's awesome. So you don't, good. you don't score a thousand points by sitting on the bench and just going through the motions, right? No. Larry no. Bird used to go into the garden, like before every game and shoot an obscene amount of shots. And that's why he's one of the best shooters in NBA history. So another shameless Irish Boston plug. Sorry. <laughs> I, I <laughs> I, I happen to share a birthday with, with Larry. So like that just hit, that just hit my heart right there. So thank nice. you for Do you that. have a license plate that says Irish 33? No, that now I'm jealous. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is, Jen, thank you so much. This was so good. I really appreciate you giving us your time. 
No, I appreciate it more. I love what you do. As, as someone to get just a little personal for like 10 seconds, my dad was in the Navy. He brought the first battalion of Marines over to Vietnam. That was a special time in his life that he didn't talk a lot about. But the one thing he did say was, you know, these soldiers give it all and they sometimes come home to nothing. What you're doing them is giving them the something that they've earned and they deserved. And Absolutely. I love that. Yep. They, they fight for us. So we fight for them. I, I, I couldn't agree it. more. Thank you, Jen. All right. Thank you so much. Yep. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io. 